Perhaps you've had a time in your life when you've questioned whether someone really loves you. Do, do they really love me? Or if they do, how much do they love me? And to reassure yourself, you might look back on some of the words they have spoken to you. Or better, you would look back at their actions, the things they have done for you, what they've sacrificed for you, what they've given to you, all that they've been to you. And through these words and especially these actions, you, you reassure yourself, yes, he, she, they really do love me, and also how much they love me. And sometimes in our spiritual lives, we can have that question about God's love. We can question, does, does God really love me? Does Jesus really love me? Does Jesus really want to save me? And if so, how much does Jesus love me? And how much does Jesus want to save me? That's the question that we want to look at today with this question, why is the timing of Christ's birth so important? The question here is one that, that arises often in our lives. We, we might perhaps have unbelief. We, we read in the Bible that, that Jesus loves us, but we, we don't believe it. Or maybe we've been raised in certain churches with bad teaching that try and convince us that God is really reluctant to love us. He really doesn't want to love us. Or perhaps it's your sins. You, you look at yourself and you think, how can God love me when these sins are in my life? Or you can… Um, that is actually the evening slides, I think. Do you have another set of slides? If not, we'll go slide free today. I'm looking at that question, I'm sort of going through my sermon, I'm thinking, that doesn't sound like my sermon. don't think I'm going crazy yet. <laughs> I, think it's, I think that was next Sunday evening. No? Well, let me, let me try and continue, and if we find the slides, we'll get them up there and go on as normal. So, we're, we're looking at this question of doubting Christ's love for us, um, questioning how He loves us. 
the reasons for that, unbelief, our bad teaching, our uh, sinfulness, maybe also mental illness. You know, when we get depressed, we can really loathe ourselves, and we think, well, if I don't like myself, how can God ever like me far less love me? So, when we have these questions about God's love for us, does God really love me? How much does He love me? We might try and find reassurance by going to His words, but especially going to His actions. And commonly, we'll go to the cross. We'll go to the cross, and there we'll hear Paul say to us, God commends His love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, we look at the cross, and we're reassured. Yes, He does love me, and yes, that's how much He loves me. But we might want more reassurance. And so, we say, well, where else can we look? Well, I would like to suggest to you we can go to not just the cross for reassurance, we can go to Mary's womb for reassurance. We can find there assurance that God loves us, and how much He loves us. And that's what we'd like to do today. We want to visit Mary's womb in order to get reassurance that God loves us and wants to save us. Thank you. Excellent. Back on track. So, this season we've been looking at the womb of history, and we've been looking at the inside story of Christmas. We're used to the outside story the shepherds, the angels, the manger, and so on. But we want to look behind the scenes, pull back the curtain, and look at the inside story of Christmas. And so, last week, we looked at the womb that fulfilled history. And this week, we want to look at the womb that saved history. I don't think any of us realize just how much of a difference uh, this womb made to the unfolding of history. And without this womb, there would be no salvation of history, neither worldwide nor our own personal history. So, today we're going to look at the womb that saved history, and through that reassures us of God's love. So, how much does God love us? Well, this passage tells us this. There's a question. Animal bodies pointed to God's love. Animal bodies pointed to God's love. We see that both in Psalm 40 and in Hebrews 10. And we're told there are two things. We're told, first of all, Old Testament sacrifices are a shadow of good things to come, and Old Testament sacrifices could never save anyone. So, let's look at these two truths. Old Testament sacrifice were a shadow of things to come. We see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it says, the law, that's the law of sacrifices, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Now, imagine you're waiting for somebody, and um, you're expecting them to come this way to you, but instead they come from behind. And as you're sitting there, you see, like I'm seeing just now, my shadow, and then another shadow comes alongside, and you recognize it. It's the person you've been waiting for. And, and you turn around, and you see them, and then turn back, and you hug the shadow. 
No, you don't, do you? The shadow told you something good is coming, and you turn from the shadow to the person that's coming, and you give them a hug. Well, what Paul is telling us here is that the Old Testament sacrifices were a shadow of good things to come. They were telling us that there was a better sacrifice to come, a greater sacrifice to come. And it was telling the early Jewish converts to Christianity, stop hugging the shadows. These sacrifices were just a promise. They were pointing towards Jesus. So, stop hugging the shadows and start hugging the person. They're just a shadow of good things to come. But now that the reality has come, the person of Jesus, forget the shadows and turn to the reality. So, Old Testament sacrifices were a shadow. Secondly, Old Testament sacrifices never saved anyone. Let's look again at Hebrews chapter 10. It says at the end of verse 1, these sacrifices that are continually offered every year cannot make perfect those who draw near. So, these sacrifices could never make anyone perfect. Secondly, they couldn't satisfy the human conscience. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? It's saying, you know, if you offer a sacrifice to cleanse your conscience and satisfy your conscience, put away the guilt, and then go and offer another one, and then another one, clearly you're saying, my conscience is not satisfied. It's not enough. And then thirdly, these sacrifices never put away sin. Look at verse 4. It says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So clearly, these sacrifices didn't perfect anyone, didn't satisfy anyone's conscience, and never put away one sin. Despite the gallons of blood shed by all these animals throughout the whole Old Testament, no one ever had their sin put away. So, we read in verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared me. So, here we are enabled, as it were, to eavesdrop, to listen in to what this eternal Son of God was thinking and saying as He left heaven to enter Mary's womb. He looks at all these sacrifices through all these years, and He says to His Father, you did not require these. That's a strange thing for Jesus to see, because He knew that His Father had certainly commanded these sacrifices and was pleased when they were offered. So, how can Jesus say, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired? Well, because although He commanded them and He wanted them to point them towards the Savior, He did not want them 
instead of their hearts. That's what a lot of the Israelites did. They, they said, well, I'm offering sacrifices, so that's enough. It doesn't matter that I don't love God. Also, he wanted the sacrifices, but not forever. There was a time coming when these sacrifices should be stopped. And yet the Jews continued them. And also, he didn't want these sacrifices as part of his plan to actually save, but only as part of his plan to point to salvation. So that's what Jesus means when he says, when he's coming into the world, sacrifices and offerings you did not want. You didn't want them instead of hearts. You didn't want them forever. And you didn't want them as the only way of salvation. So, these Old Testament sacrifices were mere shadows, and these Old Testament sacrifices never saved anyone, ever. And you might think, well, this, I mean, really? We're, we're like thousands of years back talking about animal sacrifices? What's that? I mean, I'm not exactly at risk of that myself. I mean, you look at the Israelites and you think, well, that was silly thinking that the shadow was the reality. That was silly. Thinking that these animal sacrifices could possibly save even one human soul. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. And yet, I would ask you today, are you hugging the shadow? No, maybe not Old Testament rituals, but maybe the New Testament rituals, like going to church like church membership, like baptism, like the Lord's Supper, like giving to the church, like serving in the church, like the rituals and religion that you do, these are not the reality. These point to the reality. All of these means are simply that. They are means to an end. And the end is Jesus. It's like, imagine you're away traveling and you're, you're coming back to Byron Center and maybe 20 miles away you see a sign, Byron Center, you know, take the next right or whatever. And when you see that sign, you stop and you say, I'm home at last. No. That's just the sign pointing you the way home. And, and so it is with religion that does not have Christ at the heart of it and total dependence on Him for our salvation. That's like, like embracing the Bible and prayer and church membership and church attendance and church service and church giving and saying, I'm home. No, 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 no. That's the path home. That's pointing you home. That's pointing you to Jesus. Stop hugging the shadows and stop offering sacrifices. In other words, hug the Savior, not the shadows. Use the shadows to get to the Savior. So, these sacrifices point to Christ.
animal bodies point to God's love. You say, okay, that's helpful. It's a pointer. It's a sign. But is there proof? I need more than a pointer. I need more than a sign. I need more than clues. I need more than shadows of God's love. I need solid proof. And that's what Paul gives us here, because he says Christ's body proved God's love. The animal sacrifices, they simply pointed to God's love. Christ's body proves God's love. Look again with me at Hebrews 10. Verse 5 says, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In other words, all of these sacrifices, all these shadows are being replaced by a body. This body is the proof of God's love. It's a human body. This Godhead, this eternal Son of God, united with the cells of Mary's body. There was a point in history where Jesus said, a body of you prepared me. He looked at these cells in Mary's body, and He said, behold, I come. This is the body you have prepared me. And by the Holy Spirit, the whole of God, the whole deity was compacted into microscopic cells that were fully human. Not superhuman, not subhuman, but fully human. So that at that point in history, you could look at these microscopic cells and say, that is God, and worship legitimately. And these, these cells then began to multiply. Two became four, four became eight, eight became 16, and over nine months, this little group of cells, this little humanity began to develop eyes and ears and teeth and hair and nails and a brain and a heart and a liver and a kidney and skin and bones and a soul and a personality and a character. And Jesus looked at this and said, this is a human body, my human body, a body have you prepared me. There he is, connected to Mary's umbilical cord. His whole humanity dependent on Mary. Mary's feeding, Mary's nurturing, Mary's caring for him. He's stretching. He's developing his muscles in the womb as she feels him moving. 
elbows protruding, knees sticking out. This body is fully human. He's totally connected to the human race. And then he says, I'm coming, not just in a human body, but in a prepared body. A body have you prepared for me? In other words, if you question my love, look at my human body. If you question my love, look at my prepared body. This this wasn't an accident. No, God thought this through. There was a plan. There was foresight. There was a long-term view. And he, he looked ahead and he saw exactly the kind of body that Jesus would have in his humanity. There, you think of the priests preparing sacrifices in the Old Testament. There's chapters and chapters about how they needed to prepare and organize in order for the sacrifice to be offered. Way more preparation went into this body of Christ. God chose his genes. He, he looked at Mary and he said, I want these genes. He, he looked at the kind of hair he would have and, and the tongue he would have and the eyes he would have. And he, and he thought it all through and he planned it all out and he designed it perfectly so that that body would communicate through this humanity exactly who God was. You could see God's eyes through Christ's eyes. You could could hear God's heart through Christ's heart. You could see God's mercy through Christ's hands of mercy and so on. God prepared everything. You see the lengths that God went to to prove His love for you? But there's more. It's not just a human body and a a prepared body. It's an enthusiastic body. He said in verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. If you go back to Psalm 40, it says, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it's written of me, I delight to do your will. Oh my God. Behold, I come. It's, you know, sometimes you call your child and they say, coming. There's reluctance. There's slowness. There's no enthusiasm. And then another time you call your child and they go, coming. Like you could say, right, we're off to Disneyland. Oh, I'm coming. This is Disneyland delight. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, there's no reluctance. There's there's no hesitation here. I'm coming to do your will, he says. I know exactly what's ahead of me. I know exactly what's involved in getting inside this womb and developing inside this womb and and growing inside this womb and being, being squashed inside this womb, being doubled up inside this womb, being uncomfortable within this womb being surrounded with all that you're surrounded with in the womb. And yet he looked at that and he said, I'm delighted. I can't wait. There's eagerness. There's enthusiasm. There's excitement. Behold, I come. 
This is what he lived for. This is what he looked forward to. This was the moment in time that he was all through eternity looking forward to. And then when it comes, he goes, yes, it's here. It's now. It's this woman. It's this womb. It's these cells. It's gestation in the womb. I cannot wait. So he's not, he's not doing this against his will. He's, he's fulfilling an agreement with his father. You could say Christ's first act of obedience was entering the womb of Mary. And it was a joyful, happy, enthusiastic obedience. Is that not a proof of not just his love, but how much he loves? So there's a human body to prove his love. There's a prepared body. There's an enthusiastic body. And then here we see also there's an obedient body. I've come to do your will, Psalm 40 says. My ear is open. It's the same kind of thing. The animal sacrifices didn't obey God's will. You can imagine these animals as they saw the knife, as they felt the fire heat, as they were wrestled by the priests. There was no obedience involved there. They were being dragged against their will. But Jesus wasn't. He didn't need somebody to tie him down. He did this willingly, obediently, heartily. And this was all predicted. That's the amazing thing here. Psalm 40 was written probably about a thousand years before this event. And here Paul's telling us it was fulfilled when Jesus entered the womb. So this wasn't, this wasn't a last-minute change of plan. This, Christ wasn't kept in the dark until the last minute and then said, right, you're going to the womb. No. He knew. He, if anyone understood the Bible, Jesus did. And as that Psalm 40 was written, he knew this was all about him. And he knew when he came into that womb, this was a fulfillment of a prediction. So how many evidences do we need of Christ's love and how much he loves? A human body, a prepared body, an enthusiastic body, an obedient body, a predicted body. Here's the proof of God's love. Let's love this body. Let's, if this body proves his love, let's love it back. Let's love it at every stage of its development. Let's not wait till he's 30 and doing his ministry. Let's not even wait until he's born. But let's go right back to the very moment of his conception and there love that moment and love him there and love him at one month and two months and three months, all the way through to nine months. Love him. This was him proving he was really human. This was him proving I really want connected to the human race. 
This was him proving, I want to enter into all their pains and sorrows and difficulties. This was him proving his love and how much he loved. Love is enthusiasm. There's, there's no holding back. There's no hesitation. There's no caution. He throws caution to the wind, as it were. This isn't cold obedience. This is boiling over eagerness to save. In fact, we can say this. Jesus rejoiced to enter the womb as much as he did when he left the tomb. Let that sink in. You can think of the joy as he left the tomb, can't you? The relief, the satisfaction, the victory, the accomplishment, immeasurable joy. Exactly the same joy as when he entered the womb. Here we have a remarkable, astounding proof of God's love. So we we ask this, how much does God love me and want to save me? We think of these public servants willing to show their love for people in a fire, their love for their community by going towards the fire, running towards the fire, thoughtless about their own comfort and safety. That's love. We don't question that, do we? Well, think of Christ coming to this. The whole of God willing to enter into the cells of humanity and live in a womb for nine months. He didn't didn't look at Mary's womb and say, ugh, that's beneath me. No. He said, I'm coming. This is exactly who I am. This is exactly what I'm all about. I was trying to think of of a parallel I mean, and it's a, it's, a, it's a dismal parallel in a way, and, it, and it's a bit yucky, but so is this. Imagine if you were asked to prove your love by entering into the womb of, let's say, an elephant. and living there for nine months. You'd go, ugh, wouldn't you? You'd say, that's beneath me. There is a gap between humanity and elephants. There's a far bigger gap between God and humanity. And yet Christ looked at that and he said, I'm coming. And to all the yuckiness, even the disgustingness, the discomfort, the pain, the squashing, and I'm going to do it with my whole heart. How can we doubt His love? So let's respond to this love. Let's look at this love, be reassured by it, and as we are reassured, re-love God again. 
And, and maybe if you're not a believer and you've never experienced God's love, you, therefore you can't be assured of God's love, you're asking yourself, Dave, well, what about me? Well, just as we hug as believers the body of Christ tightly as our only hope of salvation, so you are invited to do the same today, to embrace this body prepared, obedient, enthusiastic, predicted, and say, well, if this proves the love of God, why not love Him back? Why not reach out with the arms of faith and hug this body to yourself? See these cells, see this developing baby in the womb, and say, if He loves me that much, how can I not love Him back? And as we are reassured of that love and respond to that love, let's reach out with it. If, if we think of His love for the hopeless and the helpless when we look at ourselves, let's look out at the hopeless and the helpless and say, well, if He's got enough love to love me, He's got enough love to love others. And, and if He was prepared to go into the womb out of love, let me be prepared to go to the hard places with His love. So we can say this, use Christ's body in the womb to birth confidence in Christ's love and desire to save. This is the first time I used artificial intelligence for an image, because I couldn't find an image, of course, a 3D ultrasound with a baby smiling in the womb. That's why I want to communicate the, the happiness, the joy of Christ to be in the womb. So I tried, I think it was Dali, and this is what came up. And what can you see? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, baby Jesus, and Lord Jesus, forgive us for ever doubting your love and how much you love, and help us to use these cells in Mary's womb, your cells, to reassure us of your love and your desire to save us and others. Amen.